So it's September 11th. It is uh, 2011. Our news media will be fear-mongering, and uh, that's not necessarily new, but commemorating an event 10 years ago. Uh, I am absolutely convinced that the battle of the next 100 years will be a spiritual, not physical battle between the forces of Islam and the uh, truth of Christianity. Having said that, I am not inclined in any way to preach on 9-11 a 9-11 message. Uh, I believe that the Spirit of God is bigger than what is just happening in this country. I believe that His work is more than just America in the center of the map. Uh, you will get all kind of reminders of the importance and life and death decisions between what we believe just by watching the news. There are no Southern Baptists getting on planes and blowing themselves up. It's not happening. Uh, around the world, the force of terror has nothing to do with Christianity. It has everything to do with counterfeits and knockoffs. I know that's not politically correct, and everybody will talk about radical today. I want to tell you that true Islam is in and of itself radical. And just leave it at that. If you are a good Muslim, you are radical. If you are not radical, then you're a backslidden Muslim. And I prefer the backslidden ones. I'd like to get into the Word and talk to you about a radical response to the Gospel. So our message today is radical response. Is that fair enough? Yes. How many of you were here on a Wednesday night, this Wednesday? Okay, so maybe 30% of us were here on a, a, a Wednesday. Uh, I do want to remind you as we, we talk about these things, we're going to start in Luke 9, so you can turn there. Somewhere back about a month ago, uh, I began preaching a message uh, called The Whole Nation. You can find these on our website. It's good every now and then to go back and refer. The Whole Nation message had to do with God building a community and Him working in groups of people, not solely in individual lives. We tend to, as Americans, view God as a very personal Savior. We even use those terms. But the God of the Bible moved in whole communities. And when He anointed specific men, He did it for the purpose of the community. God is not interested in us taking care of me and mine. He's interested in us doing things that affect the entire world. We move from that community-oriented message to a message called Your Moment, trying to get us to realize that ordinary men did extraordinary things when they recognized the times, what was needed, and they rose to meet their moment. They were men and women just like you. The next week we preached, Night Comes. The idea, aside from the cheesy trailer that had the little Knight Rider car in it, was that we only have so many hours to work. And then our work is over. And there is no way to get it back. I just preached my father's funeral at that time, and it was on my mind. Then, about a Sunday ago, we preached Do Right. Very simple message about the kinds of things that God blesses that are found nowhere in our church life normally. Taking care of widows and orphans. Looking after anyone that is oppressed. Caring for people who have been imprisoned or have darkness in their lives. And we looked at the things that God told His people to do. We're all moving towards one idea. This Wednesday we began to talk about the discouragement that Jesus gave people. And I'm going to pick back up with that message and move forward into another today. 
I want you to consider that you are in the first century right now. Imagine that you've just, through the benefit of a time machine, somehow or another, you'd have to picture me in something that looked more like a toga. I know that's exciting. That's <laughs> scary. You've gone out to the hillsides to hear an obscure Jewish teacher. You've heard that amazing things are happening. That's truthfully the only reason you've gone. Because when you Googled him, of course you didn't have that, you found out he was the son of a carpenter. And there was some suspicion that maybe he was illegitimate. So you go out anyway just to see what all the fuss is about. And the message that you hear is, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must pick up his cross and follow me. Now, you're not in the 21st century, so you can't spiritualize this. You can't say, oh, by the cross he meant this. You can't take it as a metaphor because the only cross you have ever seen in your life is the one that the ruling power of the day, Rome, is killing people on. <coughs> so the 21st century equivalent of this would be you've gone out to see this obscure teacher whose origins were surrounded in mystery, and he said, if you want to follow me, you need to drag an electric chair along with you. And if you're not willing to put yourself last, you won't be able to follow me where I'm going because that's the path I'm on and it's narrow. In our day, we are looking for the mega church leaders. And we need to come to grips with the fact that Jesus was a mini church leader. That every time he stood before the vast crowds, he said things that were so offensive, it thinned them out. <coughs> The best teachers in the very world of any subject don't have to appeal to the populace. They don't have to get thousands and thousands and thousands of people to follow them. You know why? What they have is worth it. And the people who recognize it will receive it. Amen. Yeah. If you were a musician, what would you give to sit under Beethoven? you're a martial arts practitioner, what would you give to sit under the greatest in your particular genre? And would you want 30 other thousand people there, or would you just want to be one who was there? Christianity is not exclusive. It is for everyone. But the reality is, only a few embrace its actual message. So when we looked at the message in Luke 9, and forgive me for the repetition, but I believe the church needs this repetition. Picking up with me in 9 verse 57. It says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Many, many people say that they will follow Jesus. In fact, in our country, something like 80% of the nation says that it is Christian. But Jesus' response when people say, I will follow you wherever you go, he replies here, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. I preached about this Wednesday, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to tell you, if this was the gospel message you were hearing, you want to follow me? Fine. You will likely be homeless. Would you still follow? We love in the movies where some disciple, some pupil, Karate Kid is based on this idea, where some pupil has to do things that he doesn't understand, right? Wax the car, put his jacket on a hook, whatever it was. And it was for a greater purpose that would benefit him later. Because of course the test is, if you don't understand what you're being asked to do, will you trust the instructor enough to do it? 
And both of those movies stressed a point where uh, the American in his spoiled, entitled behavior doesn't want to do it because he doesn't understand. And what a perfect metaphor for American Christianity. We will follow you, Jesus, as long as you explain it to us in advance. And there's a greater reward for our following you than the cost of following you. Jesus did not beg this man to follow him. In fact, he said, if you do, you probably won't end up with a house at the end of it. This was the kind of call that went out to the world because it forced you to say, are you really worth it? How many of you would immediately say, of course I would follow Jesus even if I lost my house? Probably all of us. But if faced with doing something for Jesus that risked your house, how much harder is it to actually walk that out than it was to say it? Many of you have moved to this ministry, moved to this place, did it at the cost of having to sell your house. How hard was that? How many of you just hurt inside because you got comfortable there? Maybe you didn't get the sale price for it that you wanted for it. And we lay that all we have given up for Jesus. When the very call that he gave every human being who followed him was, I am more important than anything that you have. Wow. That is a different kind of American Christianity, isn't it? Because it's not American. It is authentically Jewish. It's authentically Jesus. How about the next guy? He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first. Now I want to tell you, whatever comes after first is unimportant. We could talk and did Wednesday night all about Jewish burial customs in the first century and what that meant. But anytime the Lord says, Brandon, I want you to, and you say, first, what are we doing? We're saying, I have direction in my life. I have decision in my life. I take precedence over you. I'm Lord and you're Lord. We could just right now stop and carve for ourselves a little wooden idol. We could make it look exactly like us. Put it on the dash of your car. Put it in your kitchen every day. You could come in and sing to it, how great thou art. You could pay tithe to it. That way, one day a week, you could go do whatever you wanted to do with the money. That would be a more accurate representation of us when we say, I will do your will, Lord, but first. It is idolatry. But you don't hear messages like this very often because it doesn't feel this. But the call of God said, no idolatry. Period. If I tell you to do it, your home, your family, nothing's more important. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Very reasonable thing. Lord, I care about their feelings. Don't you care about their feelings? The king that we serve said, if your relationship with him does not make your relationship with others look like hate, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. But this is not the gospel message that we hear preached. <coughs> Mostly what we hear preached is that if you believe on Jesus, <coughs> he'll fulfill your wildest desires. It's like voting for Pedro in the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Vote <laughs> for Pedro. And all your dreams will come true. <laughs> this is the kind of Disneyland Jesus that we preach. The reality is century of Christians, centuries and centuries, millennia at this point, have died for these words. This book that you hold in your hands is a testament to a murder. 
It is blood-stained pages. Not in some metaphorical sense. Not just because the hymns sing us that blood flowed from the cross. This book is an actual testament not just to the murder of Jesus, but of most of his followers. And why? Because they love not their lives so much to shrink back from death. But in our century, the gospel we preach is if you love Jesus, you will end up with the best of everything. I find it to be disingenuous at best and wicked at the worst. When Jesus preached the truth of the gospel, it cost you your very life. For some people, it cost them their lives physically within just a few years. Go see James. He's martyred with a mallet in the first century. All of the apostles except John, and they tried to kill John three times, and it didn't stop with them. People in here have seen the movie Gladiator? Yeah, we won't discuss that yet. Marcus Aurelius is an emperor in the movie. The truth is he's also a historical figure. What he's most famous for in Christian history is in a single year he murdered 50,000 Christians in the Roman Colosseum. They cut scenes out of that movie. You can get them on the special DVD selection, although I don't, uh, I don't think you should. It's when they took Christians out into the center of the arena and wrapped goat skins and sheep skins around them and fed them to wolves. They cut it out of the movie because 80% of America claims to be Christian and we can't confront America with that kind of truth or they would not buy the movie. The kind of movies that we buy say we're the best. Not that it costs us nothing. Uh, I preached this Wednesday, and I didn't know whether anybody would be here Sunday. So let me first say I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for showing up Sunday after hearing these things Wednesday. The last thing that I shared with you on Wednesday before we move through the message today, and I think it is worth revisiting, is why were people willing to be homeless? Why were they willing to be excluded from their families? Why were they willing to put Jesus' priorities before theirs no matter what they were? Because they had found, Matthew 13, 44 said, treasure. And like a man who discovered treasure in this field over here, everybody would think he was stupid if he went and quit his job, if he went and sold his car, if he went and sold his house. If his family came and said, David, stop what you're doing. You're ruining your life. And he said, I'm sorry. Get behind me, Satan. I'm doing the will of God. They would say, you are insane. God would never want you to put your family at risk. But what they don't know that David does know is he's obtaining treasure that far outweighs anything that he had. Amen. They all look and say, David, the cost of what you're doing is too high. But David can smile and say, the cost of what you refuse to do is too high. Amen. Amen. This is the gospel message. This is what we preach Wednesday. I told many of you that this was like being on a flight. And sometimes you get on a plane and the stewardesses come out and the captain comes on and he says, the weather is sunshiny in Toronto today. We'll be landing in two hours and 43 minutes and there's a person on the plane that goes, Toronto, I thought I was going to California. You're on the wrong flight. 
This is the direction, the journey, that our community of believers is heading. The reckless abandonment of self, the total, unquestioned devotion to Jesus. Not to a man, not to an organization, not to a denomination, not to a specific list of creeds, to Jesus and his word. And I thought there was a chance nobody would show up today. So I'm proud of you. This means that we are hungry for the right things, which is where we start our message today. Amen? Amen. By the way, could you imagine any speaker standing up and discouraging people from following Jesus and thinking that was good preaching? But it's exactly what Jesus did. He discouraged three out of three men who wanted to follow him. Because they needed to count the cost. Discouragement is going to come. Perseverance shows genuineness. This is what Romans 5 teaches us. In your bulletin, I gave you some five or six points that are listed under the pastor's notes. This is so that as I move from topic to topic, and I may or may not cover those topics, I, I, I give you no promises. You have... A kind of guideline. The point here is not that you can regurgitate a message. The point is not that afterwards we can talk about the accuracy of the exegesis. The point is not so you can discuss the homiletical background or the hermeneutical excellence. The point here is so that you can stand and say, this is what I received from this message. I want to tell you something, friends. If when you're reading the Word... And you have to go talk to people about the word. You, they, them, pronouns that refer to everyone else or what comes out of your mouth, you're missing the point. The word first and foremost addresses I, me, and mine. You know why? Everyone dreams of changing the world. No one starts with themselves. Tolstoy said that. Smart Russian. You ready? <laughs> Turn with me to Deuteronomy 8. <coughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Anybody in here struggle with the order of the books? What, y'all don't speak in church anymore, or are you just going to lie to me? Who struggles with the order of the books? I bought some bookmarks the other day because I cut them out of my box. Bad <laughs> decision. And uh, you can't buy one bookmark. Isn't that interesting? It's not possible to go buy a single bookmark at the Christian bookstore, but it's kind of a neat principle. If you would like one, stick up your hand and uh, David will give it to you. It's got all of the books in order on it. That would be a little cheat sheet for you. In Deuteronomy 8, we're going to start in the first verse. Before we read Deuteronomy 8, I love to see you with your hands up. It's like church participation. <laughs> Before we read Deuteronomy 8, when we came here today, there were sound systems, there was a band, there were guitars, there's some entertainment value to what we do, there's air conditioning, there's cushioned chairs, but churches all over the world will be meeting this morning. I've been to many of them, I've taken you to some of them, and there are Absolutely, no sound systems because there's no electricity. There's no band because they don't own any instruments, so there's no guitars. There's no entertainment value because they don't really know what entertainment is. They're not air conditioned 
and there are no cushioned chairs. I've even been in meetings where the women sat on the dirt floor and the men stood outside the windows in the sun so everybody that was uh, older or female or a child could sit inside and they had no child care. If that's what you came to this morning, would it matter to you? There was no sound. There was no beautiful worship led by J.J. and all of the people. If it was hot, as all get out. If maybe you had to stand in the sun because other people needed to be in the shade more than you did. If nobody was back there watching your children, would God's word be enough? Or would we just simply go find another church that had all of those things? Which begs the question, then why are we here? Do we really want just God's word and God's word preached? Or do we want God's word along with every conceivable comfort that could be imagined? Are we shopping for our churches like shopping for the best meal in a line at Luby's? Or are we really searching our heart and saying, Lord, where do you want me that will challenge me to grow, that will nurture the authentic faith where I can be equipped to do your will? What is our desire? I think the honest answer for most has got to be that that's not been a thought for us. But if you go preach a meeting in India that goes eight hours and the people fasted two weeks prior to your arrival and they're there at the cost of physical beatings, their jobs and their school life, our entire choir, the trip before last in India, all received Fs on their finals to be at a meeting. Their pastor told them you can choose whether you want to succeed in the world or in the kingdom, and they chose. Wow. The presence of God showed up then. He met us right where we were. There was a sound system there. It was terrible. It was the worst I've ever been around. It was the most distracting, annoying thing I had ever seen. And you know what? Nobody mind. The first meeting was supposed to go from 8 o'clock 10 o'clock, two hours, which that's incredibly long by American standards. We finished at 2 that morning and started at 8 a.m. Without any child care, without any AC, without anything, why will they do that and we won't? They've decided God's word is enough for them. Amen. Let's look at Deuteronomy 8. Starting in the first verse. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today. By the way, to us, command is a very strong word. But it is not as strong as it is in Hebrew. In Hebrew, this word is mitzvah. And a mitzvah purely is not optional. It can't be rationalized away. It is either something that you were obedient to or not obedient to. There was no such thing as partial obedience. It would be like partial pregnancy. You either did or did not do the mitzvah. You with me? Be careful to follow every command that I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep His commands. Before we read the rest, we have to first start with an acknowledgement. Something called sober judgment. 
It is a mistake to act as if God does not really care what you do. As if grace is such a broad term that disobedience does not affect it. Grace is that you have the opportunity to do what God has told you to do. It is not an eraser or an excuse for not doing what God told you to do. He sets before us His Word. Deuteronomy calls it life and death. Life if we're obedient, death if we don't, and we all deserve death. So grace appeared to all men. It gives you the opportunity to revisit the issue. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, did they die? Yes, but they did not become dead. They didn't drop over that minute. Grace was that they had chances to be obedient moving forward. Grace did not say there is no consequence for what you just did. In fact, we all still reap the consequence. I know I'm speaking to people who have never sinned. But for this man who has, more often than I would like with worse consequence than I would have accepted. Sin always has further ramifications than you realize when you commit it. Always. It always takes you further down a road than you ever wanted to go. Nobody in Houston sleeping under a bridge today woke up one day and said, you know, I hope, I aspire to be a crack whore one day. Never happened. Sin was subtle. Deception moved in. And before long, something mastered them. I'm going to steal a quote from Mike who stole it from Harriet Tubman. Is it true that you freed hundreds of slaves? Yes, and I would have freed thousands if only they had known they were slaves. In American Christianity, we have slaves attending church every day who do not know that we are slaves. And the test is, has our hurt been revealed in our actions? It's an easy thing to say, I will follow you wherever you go, Lord. It is a very difficult thing to look back and say, have I? What in the last year of my life demonstrates trust for God over trust for myself? It's not to make us feel bad, church. I one time knew a woman whose daughter was obese. She took the <laughs> daughter to the doctor. The doctor said, your child's obese. The child cried. So mom and daughter went to McDonald's before coming to church. This is a perfect metaphor for our lives. When we feel bad, we comfort ourselves with more things that make it worse. There's one thing that's missing from us. The confidence that comes from knowing you have risked it all and you still stand here because the Almighty God has upheld you. The thing that people have in the third world in their Christian churches that we often don't have it's the character that has come from being put to the test and seeing God was sufficient when their arm was not sufficient. Can we all agree that missionaries have a special zeal about them? There's something unique. You can point them out in a crowd. They're kind of like Christian cowboys. Now let's consider the fact that the Great Commission was not given to missionaries. It's given to every follower of Jesus. Go forth into all the nations, making disciples, <laughs> teaching them to obey. Somewhere in the American gospel, we have removed obedience from the formula and we've replaced it with the word belief. And you do not know if you believe if your obedience has never been put to the test. 
God put his people in situations where they were at the end of their resources so they could find the beginning of his. He put them in situations where they had no choice but to hunger for something and then he waited to see what they hungered for. How many times have we been in a gut-wrenching situation and pacified it with something other than the presence of God? He put us in that situation so he could see and we could see where our heart is. The inclination of man's heart is naturally an evil thing. It takes the Spirit of God to illuminate to you that there is another way, a better way. To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. How many times have you uttered, now let's get it out of your life. It would be easier for you to see if we talk about Someone else's life. You could think of me if you like. How many times have you heard the phrase, God knows what's in my heart. And it's usually uttered when your actions profess something other than what you say is in your heart. The truth is God does know what's in your heart. He knows it the same way a farmer knows whether he planted the right kind of tree. He sees the fruit of your actions. That's how he knows. And he puts you in situations so that he can find out anything he wants to and his knowledge is never limited. He is never deceived about who you are. How often have you been deceived about who you are? I spent all 18 years of the first 18 years of my life totally deceived about who I am. And I caught a glimpse of my life as a monstrous sinner before God. A man who could quote scripture and win Bible awards, but could not with confidence say I had ever done anything that the Lord asked of me. And I was faced with a gut-wrenching challenge, a, a, a strategic inflection point in my life. I could continue to do what I'd always done, keep up the facade, play nice with those around me, and pretend that we were all on our way to what they were calling heaven, even though I had the sentence of hell in my heart. I could cling to my doctrine that had said, because I was saved, I would always be saved. In the reality, I had never been saved. Or I could fall on my face and say, change me. The grace of God appeared to me, and for the first time in my life, there was power there to do something different. Things that had enslaved me always. Things I could have never gotten free of in my own strength. Suddenly in his strength I could do. Now what I would like to tell you is I spent 18 years being deceived. And the next 18 years deception never entered my life. But that is not true. Many times I have considered myself a hero because there was a small sacrifice that in my mind was a huge <laughs> sacrifice. But when compared... With the sacrifice of Jesus, it doesn't matter. When compared with the sacrifice of the men in the scripture, it was very small. And when compared with the church worldwide, it was non-existent. How often are we just sure that we're entitled to the best for no other reason than the place of our birth? This is not Christianity. This is the rich young ruler that Jesus looked at and said, unless you go sell everything, you can't follow me. Did you know Mark said he looked at him and loved him? 
Now immediately your minds, your Greek-oriented minds, your linear minds go, okay, well, how's that look in my life? Are you telling me to sell everything? I'm telling you that there is no way to enter the kingdom lest you be obedient to every word that Jesus speaks to you. And you cannot profess obedience if it has never been tested. And we are very good at saying we will do a thing as long as it is never asked of us. I'm saying that we have an amazing capacity for self-deception. And when the Word of God puts it to the test, we just lie and say we passed it. How many times has God told us to do something that it rained that day and we say God changed his mind? Charismatics are the worst in the world at this. We lay at the feet of the Lord our fickle decisions. God put his people in situations in order that he might know what was in their heart. And you know who else it became evident to? Then. He was after one thing. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers have known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Amen. Our king quoted this scripture when being tempted in the desert. He had eaten no food for 40 days. He had had no shelter for 40 days. He was out in the elements for 40 days. So when he said man does not live on bread alone, it had been put to the test, and it was real in his life. We do everything we can to insulate ourselves from anything that would put this to the test. Is the word for us really enough? Have we learned to live on it? Is it all we want? Well, if I turned off the air conditioner, how long would it be before every person had left the building? See, this is the kind of thing where we immediately say, oh, of course, I want Jesus. I want Jesus at all costs. You have all of my life, Lord, until he asks for any part of it. This is the Lord's car, friend. God gave me this car. Good. Can I borrow it? I need to pick up a missionary from the airport. Oh, I'm afraid not. What do you mean? I thought you said it was the Lord's car. You see, David, that's really just what I say to make myself feel better about having bought this car. It never really belonged to the Lord. This is an accurate picture of where we are most of the time. There's a man preaching here in Houston not long ago to the homeless. He'd invited pastors to help him. Pastor showed up in a new yellow Camaro. Nothing wrong with Camaros. I wouldn't have picked one that was yellow, but not a thing in the world wrong with it. He was preaching the typical prosperity message. Look how the Lord has blessed me. Look what the Lord gave me. Got angry when a homeless man sat on it. Is that the gospel, really? Is that the gospel? I would say no. I would invite you to challenge why you serve Jesus. Is it for fishes and loaves? Or is it because you have found the one who has the words of life? And if you were homeless, if you were familyless, if you never got one of your priorities checked off your list, would you still follow him? Because if he is the ultimate, he is worth that. If he's one God among many, chief of which is you, then we practice some kind of strange syncretism where we work the Lord of glory into our lives as a co-deity. Anybody in? I hope you don't have the sticker on your car, God is my co-pilot. Well, at least they told the truth. Co-pilot. 
not the pilot, the co-pilot. How sad is this? But if we're honest, this is where most of us live. We do what he says as long as it's not hard. I want to invite you to a radical kind of obedience that says, if it's difficult, the Presbyterians would do it. He called me. That was a joke. I'm sorry. Are all you a few Presbyterians? <laughs> I don't know. Are you scared to speak this morning? This is a large family meeting. That's all this is. A pastor is not some exalted papal figure. I don't have one of those pointy hats to hide my horns. <laughs> a pastor is a brother who has a different function. My function this morning is to introduce you to some concepts in the Word that you might not naturally gravitate to in the hopes that you leave differently than you walked in here. Is that fair enough? Yeah. So let's turn to Psalm 107 then. Tell me when you're there. Speak to me. Did you know that in the first century when they had their community meetings and synagogues because there were no churches in the first century. The whole concept of church being a brick building is Roman. Never occurred before. Church was the people. 270 some odd times it shows up in the Bible in Greek as Iglesia. It always referred to the people, never a building. But in the buildings that they met in, the rabbis did something. The messianic rabbis did something. Men who were following Jesus but were Jewish by birth, they dug a hole and they stood knee-deep in the hole. Because the man speaking was supposed to be the most humble in the building. Is there a hole up there? No, our stages get higher every year. Our leaders get further from us every year. And you know what? It's not just their fault. It is their fault. But the people love it that way. And you know why they love it that way? If he's a little bit distant, if he's a little bit above, we never have to live up to the exact standard that he preaches. We can take and choose. We prefer movie star pastors who live at a distance from our lives. And then we're crushed when we find out they're regular human beings that are subject to sin in the same way every human being is and by the grace of God deliver. Did anybody in here live through the 80s? Do you remember the newspaper headlines? And what we like to do is say, well, those guys were never really men of God. They were charlatans. Don't be deceived. They're men just like you. Set out with good intentions and they ended up in bad places. Some of them have continued on with the Lord and they're probably twice the men of God that they ever were when they were popular. Psalm 107. Give thanks to Yahweh for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands of the east and the west and the north and the south. Some wandered in desert lands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. What a condition that the Lord can work with. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the, not the rich. To proclaim freedom to the captive, not the already free. The doctor shows up to treat the sick, not those who are already well. The power of our God is for those who are oppressed and know that they are oppressed and want something better. Billy Graham said after all of his years of preaching, 
He learned something about America. We had received enough weak, dead Christianity to inoculate us from the true, powerful Christianity. We had learned a language, a kind of Christianese. We had learned just enough to say, I'm good. When the central truth of the gospel is that you're not good. If the power of God is not at work in you, you're incapable of anything good. And yet testimony after testimony that I hear, even in our churches, is I love the Lord pretty well all my life. I've been a pretty good old boy, but here recently I got serious about Jesus. Now you haven't read your Bible. You're an enemy of God. Possessed of a spirit that is at war with Him prior to being saved. Having become saved, you are no longer that sinner, but defined by His nature, you become a saint. The old nature is dead. You have to count it dead, because in reality it's right there with you. You have to feed the spiritual nature so that you can do God's will. To call us just old sinners is to surrender and say we're not capable of ever doing anything right. To call us saints is to acknowledge that God has sanctified us, but it falls short of another problem. He does not love everything that you do. When is the last time you had to look at somebody and say, I am terribly sorry that was wretched sin and it hurt? We say things like, I could have done better, brother. The little shoulder shrug is supposed to say it all, right? Oh, I got it. You have fallen into rampant, immoral, terrible behavior. And what do our pastors say? It's not God's best for you. Really. That's like saying suicide's not good for you. This is not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. The Bible teaches that sin has a wage and that it's death. That it cannot coexist, cannot continue to thrive and survive and habitually multiply in a believer. When we think of sin, we usually think of all the things that we're not supposed to do. The Bible in James 4.17, though, describes sin as the good that you know you should do and do not do. I'm not worried about what you eat or drink. I'm not worried about whether you smoke or not. I'm not particularly worried about what kind of clothes you wear other than I would like to see less of you. I am very worried about whether or not you do what God tells you to do. Which raises a whole other question. Because of dispensationalism and something called cessationism, we've decided God does not tell us to do anything anymore. Really. When did he stop? And why did I not get the memo? We didn't have a codified New Testament until the year 200. They said, well, when the last apostle died, this happened. I can name 24 listed in Scripture. When did the last one die? So, well, I meant the original 12. Was Judas one of those? Was Paul not included in the original 12? How about Matthias, who nobody knows? This is biblically ignorant, and it only works on people that you don't want to know the whole truth. They don't want it. They want the minimum. Tell me what to do so I can say I'm saved. Friends, I want the maximum. I want all there is to be had of God. Because in his word, which I've become hungry for, I have found out he is righteous. 
and I am not. His way is right, and mine are fatally flawed become, because I come from the same disease stock you do. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. When do we cry out to the Lord, friends? Oh, well, that's jailhouse religion, Pastor. Friends, if you didn't cry out to the Lord in trouble, then you never got saved. Because salvation is realizing how deep the pit is in. The pit is that you're in. There is no other kind of salvation other than I am utterly corrupt, incapable of doing anything good, and my best efforts are backfiring on me, and I need your help, Lord. The truth outlined in the gospel is those that are hungry and thirsty like that, I will die. Right now I'm as good as dead if I don't get your word. If you don't treasure it like that. Well, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot be saved. So what we do is we demonize them and make them horrible people. But the truth is, they were better people than most people you know. The standard is higher than we think, friends. I got saved with one scripture, and it's, it's a funny thing. The first time that the Lord spoke it to me, it was uh, earth-shaking. I literally felt my insides reverberate. But after you hear it a couple hundred thousand times, you get used to it. We become numb to it. It says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father, not believes it, not who talks about it, not who intellectually ascends to it, but he who does it. And today we have great arguments about faith and works. It is not possible for you to say you possess faith and it be a true statement if it is not producing works. It's like saying I'm being acted on by gravity, but there is no pressure, there is no falling, there is no... It's deception. Check this out. I promise I will eventually read Psalm 107. <laughs> they were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His unfailing love and His wonderful deeds for men. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Some sat in darkness and the deepest gloom. Prisoners suffering in iron chains. For they had rebelled against the words of God. We act as if our disobedience to God's word brings no chance. Our disobedience to God's word has no effect because after all, we're all under Grace. Can I give you just a little theological kung fu? That'd be okay. Yes. Old Testament, all law, right? It's there to bind you up. It's there to show you how guilty you are, right? He gave it to a redeemed people. <laughs> how could that be true? He gave it to a nation that had just been redeemed from slavery and baptized in the Red Sea and following the leading of his spirit in the desert. He gave the book of Leviticus to a redeemed people adopted as sons of God. So did he give it to them to bind them up? 
the aim and goal of Torah is life. All God's word was meant to produce life. But old or new, Revelations, Matthew, Genesis, Malachi makes no difference. Obedience produces life. Disobedience produces death and bondage. For they have rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the deepest of gloom and he broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. For he breaks down gates of bronze and he cuts through bars of iron. Bronze in the Bible is judgment. Iron has to do with strength, unbreakable bars. I want you to hear this repeated just in Psalm 107. And I'll tell you it is the entire book of Judges and it is also your life story. We experience God's freedom, His Savior. He raises up for us a Messiah. And we're obedient. And we get free and it feels great. And then we forget that we didn't get free by our own power. We forget that our natural state is terrible. And that if we don't get a divine infusion of His presence in our life daily, we return to the natural state. And so what we do then is we forget about the God who freed us. And He allows oppression to come right back into our lives. And because we're good, rich, affluent. Okay, I, how many of you revile at the word rich? I, I'm not rich, right? Anybody here say, I'm not rich? Say you're not rich while standing next to a guy I stood next to in India. You got clothes? More than he had. Do you know that you will eat today? More than he did. Do you have clean water within walking distance? More than he had. You don't have to go to India for that. You can find the very same things. Six hours south of here in Matamoros. That's why we go almost every month. You can also find it in Brazil. You can also find it in Romania. All countries we support, out of this little group, we support. 10% is laughable, by the way, friends. Laughable. Just a place to start. Our church sets that example. If we limited it to 10%, we would support a missionary. Instead, we support seven. You know why? I have found a field full of treasure. And nothing, nothing is comparable to it. Nothing. The story in Psalm 107 is the story of the Bible. God liberates people who are hungry for Him. And when we're not hungry for Him, He allows difficulty into our life so that we will be hungry for Him. This is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. Cursed is the ground for your sake. It will produce thorns and thistles. Well, why, why is that for my sake, Lord? Because those thorns and thistles will remind you how much you need me. It will remind you of the fruit of your own actions. This is the gospel. Utter, total dependence <laughs> upon God and His Word through the man Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, through God Jesus, however you would like to say it. That is the gospel, not partial obedience. How many of you have surrendered your life to the full-time ministry? What a ridiculous statement. Is there some other kind of ministry? While Jesus was on the cross, did I not get the memo? If you'd like to serve me two hours a week, you can. 
If you'd like to serve me two days a week, you can. If you'd like to serve me for a few years, then take a 10-year sabbatical, you can. I never got those. What I heard was there's one way to the Father, and no man gets to Him except through me. And you can't come to me unless He draws you. What I get are scriptures like Acts 11. This is so dead. God granted even the Gentiles, have you seen those guys? Granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Surprise! They can be saved. He granted them the ability to turn around. Sounds like they were not capable of it by themselves. And by the way, as far as I know, most of you are Gentiles just like me. All with the same problems, the same dependency on God. So what happens when we're not so hungry for God's Word? We think parts of it are optional. Yeah. Are you a full gospel church? Is there some other kind of church? Would you like to be a half gospel church? <laughs> a one-quarter gospel church? The angel told Peter and John, go back into the square. Proclaim the full message. Not the parts you like. Not the parts that build bigger church. I found out in speaking with some other pastors, we're doing almost everything wrong. I want you to know that. Apparently now, a worship service consists of three songs. A sermon consists of 25 to 35 well-orated minutes. And from beginning to end, from parking lot to parking lot, should be no more than an hour and ten minutes. Do you think that that's how the Beatitudes work, friends? Do you think that that's how the grassy hillsides in Israel work? Jesus became concerned for the people. He had compassion on them and he fed them. You know what? They'd been there all day in the sun because they thought he was worth it. Now consider the fact that not all of them, most of them, didn't make it. That's a gut check, isn't it? It's a gut check for me. Please don't think I'm standing up here saying, I've arrived and you haven't. I am working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Confident that he who began the good work in me will bring it to completion. But it is a gut-wrenching, narrow road because my nasty flesh would like to exalt comfort over sacrifice. And I'm sure I'm the only one in the room. I know nobody ever wants to be the CEO on the first day of the job, huh? Nobody ever goes to a martial arts class because they want to be the teacher. The question is not, do you want to be the teacher? Do you want to be the CEO? Do you want to be Jesus? The question is, are you willing to do what it takes to get there? And obedience is the only way to get anywhere. But we serve a generation that just says, I'm already there by virtue of birthright. Suffer? Mm, I'm beyond it. I'm all in the blessing now. <coughs> That's not working in the Congo, friends. It's not working in Darfur. That's not working anywhere else. So do you think God loves you more because you were born in the contiguous 50 states or happen to live here now? To he who has been given much, what is required? Much. Okay. So uh, what I was hoping to illustrate with Deuteronomy 8 is God puts you in positions to see what you're hungry for. He causes you to hunger and then he feeds you with what you need that our life cycle has to do with Him feeding us with good things when we're hungry for it, withholding them when we're not, letting the circumstances around us teach us, drive us towards Him. It's not because He's mean or cruel. It's because He loves us and is teaching us and He is worth it. Turn with me to Psalm 146, then we'll get out of the Psalms. Psalm 146. 
if the clock that is naturally attached to your rear end is telling you it's 12 o'clock, um, I'm just saying that Jesus is worth a little more than that. Um, and for most of us, that area of the body is well padded, and I bet you'll survive it. <laughs> Psalm 146. In Psalm 146, profound statement. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I will praise the Lord all of my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17 that if a man trusts in his own arm, he is cursed. There is no exception for those who say they believe in Jesus. If we believe Jesus is who he said he is, then you by necessity must believe you are who he says you are. John 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Save, sanctified, speaking in other tongues, prophesying, healing matters not. If you are not connected to him in that moment, being obedient to what he says, your best is not good enough. We cannot be connected to him saying that we are doing what he said to do without doing it. That doesn't work. You're connected to your monarch through the rule of his law in your life. That's how you're connected to him. This is why he said, if you love me, you will walk as I walked. This is love for me, obedience to my commands. It says it a hundred. Has anybody in here ever read First and Second John? It's insane how simple it is. You know why he made it that simple? Because by the end of the first century, all seven churches had corruption in them. The same churches that he addressed in the book of Revelation, this I have four, this I have eight. Incredible things too, like I'll come take your lampstand away, my presence away. He wanted to make it painfully clear to You love me. You need to do what I tell you to do. Same man wrote both letters by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. We'd say we need our own letter, except he gave it to you. It's sitting in your life. We cannot sit around and rationalize away obedience and think he's pleased with it. It doesn't work that way. Trusting in man is false, even if you're the man you're trusting in. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. There's a difference between God and us, and it's evident in the Scripture. We're faithful for a little while. We're faithful when it pleases us. We're faithful until it gets hard. He is faithful to what He said forever. And friends, that is a very double-edged sword. He's faithful to forgive you, love you, give you grace, and He is faithful to burn you, judge you, and eternally separate you. He is faithful to what He said He would do. Faithful. He's not a man that lies, Numbers 23 says, or the son of man that he should change his mind. He is not like that. He does exactly what he said he would do without respect to person. We are not quite that way all the time, are we? This is why we need to decrease and he needs to increase in our lives. It's why dependency on our own ability to reason things out, our ability to choose right from wrong needs to decrease and dependency upon his spirit 
and his word to illuminate the right way to live needs to increase. You can't watch the news for two hours every day and read his word twice a week for 15 minutes and think that he is guiding our lives. How many of you would tell your two-year-old, no, we're good, check back, with you, check back in with me on Wednesday and Sunday? Maybe we have a higher appraisal of ourselves than we should. You need his word daily. You need contact with him regularly, all of the time. I hope I'm stepping on some toes. I'm sure trying. There's not a lot left here in this arsenal. I'm trying to effect change. If you leave here and you don't think about this for the rest of the day, I failed or you failed or we both failed. Because the entire goal here is to get you to want to draw near to him, to get hungry for him. Hunger for God's word teaches us about God's character. It teaches us things like he's faithful to his judgment. He's faithful to grant repentance. He's faithful to liberate the oppressed, to punish the oppressor. It teaches us that God is just. But His worship also teaches us about our character. You cannot read the Word without saying that we're fickle, rebellious, stubborn, unfaithful, deserving of destruction. And what we're famous for doing is going, oh, well, that was Israel. <laughs> Or, oh, that was the Pharisees. Or, oh, that was someone else. And yet, this word was given to... Do you have your name in your Bible? Or write it there. It's given to you. We love to transfer the blame. It's the American pastime more than baseball. Who did it? She did. He did. They did. Anybody but me. We're everybody's victim. We're creating new offenses that we were victimized by all of the time. We're the most disenfranchised group of people that the world has ever produced, and we're the most blessed there is. All at the same time. That's an amazing uh, paradox, isn't it? The Bible is there to rightly divide the motives of your heart from your own thoughts. He understands the motive behind your thought. He can separate your soul from your spirit, and His Word does that. To the extent that we hunger for it, we find out about God's character. Proverbs 16, 26 says, The labor's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him. If you're going to work for the Lord, a hunger for his word is what has to drive us. Otherwise, you end up a physician with the same prescription for everybody. Like, oh friend, you're depressed, try this. Oh friend, you're uh, uh, excitable. Impetuous, try this, and it's the same thing. You can only minister then out of your unique experience. But the Word of God has an appropriate word for everyone. It tells Nicodemus something like you must be born again, never mentions it to the woman at the well, just says you need to drink from the living water. He didn't mention living water to Nicodemus and didn't mention born again to the woman at the well. He had an appropriate word for everyone. But what we're looking for is something that is franchisable. Something that can be passed down from a headquarters. Neatly distributed to everybody and absolutely free from error, but also free from life. Can we say that Larissa might need a different word than CJ does? Yes. 
So we can't boil it down to 14 points that we all already agree upon and then talk about them in a new and exciting way every week. The Word of God is living. It is active. It is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. And when that was written to Timothy, there was no New Testament. The Old Testament's boring. That's because you hadn't read it. It's not boring if you've read it. Oh, the Bible's boring. You show me a chapter in Acts and I will show you something exciting. Where else are you going to see people get beat up by, get beat up and run out of a room naked by one man or a shipwrecked? Or the earth shake when people pray? Or a man on death row have prison doors fly open? Where else are you going to find these things? Men who heard the voice of God. It's only boring if you've never had anything to do with it. I've met more people in my life that say, I know what it says, but have never read it. What a comforting thought. Would you get the wrong idea about somebody if you only emphasize one of their character traits? <laughs> Jim, have you ever gotten angry? Gosh, really? Are you all surprised? You got angry at least one time? That's all we ever emphasize. Is it true that she is angry? Well, sure. She just admitted to it. If that's all we emphasize, would it be an accurate picture of the whole person? You run around and tell everybody God is love all of the time, and that's all you ever tell them, and you have missed the boat. Yeah. He is love. You'd be surprised how much He loves you. He loves you enough to purge the universe from wickedness. And much of that wickedness is found in people even that are called by His name. How many people can quote John 3.16 in a baseball game? Cannot quote John 3.17. That is an amazing thing. The verdict is out, though, friends. doesn't matter how religious we are. The test is not your religion. It is obedience. That is the test. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What you hunger for is what you will be filled with. And if all we hunger for is American Idol, we will be filled with American idols. We need to fall on our knees and have a profound change of heart that hungers for something more than entertainment, that hungers for the Word of God. It says, Lord, I need your instruction in my life today. I don't just need you to point me in a general direction and check back in with me every few months. I have a total dependency on you right now. Turn with me to Colossians. Well, you're turning to Colossians. Numbers 23, 19. As God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Why that comparison? Why would we compare God to a man and then say God doesn't speak and then not do it, doesn't promise and then not fulfill? Because that's what the Bible says men do. Speak, but not act. Promise, but not fulfill. Are we really better than the generation that Jesus looked at and said wicked and perverse generation? We usually would all stand and agree and say, oh, well, our nation's headed the wrong direction, but you forget you're a member of the nation. 
We'll all stand and say, oh, well, man, the stuff that comes out of Hollywood is wicked, but then we're the first to buy it. We all say, I can't believe the way that people dress today. But if you looked in the mirror, well, you know, she wanted the jeans. I mean, you know, it wasn't worth fighting over. Some things are worth fighting over. You're in a life or death struggle with your sinful nature right now. You lose that one, you're going to lose every other one. It's the same struggle that Cain had. Sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. Cain couldn't. God gave you a spirit so that you can. The grace of God is that you can do something about it. You are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. But the Bible also says in Romans 5, you're a slave to whoever you obey. So we need to ask the question. Bob Dylan had a few years that were good years. He sang a song called, You're Going to Have to Serve Somebody. Be a socialite with a long string of pearls and you're going to have to serve somebody. There are no Bob Dylan fans out there. What's wrong? Mm -hmm. I was talking about a saved devil. Slow train to come. He had a profound revelation of the truth. He didn't hang on to it. He didn't think the knowledge of God worth retaining. He now calls those the most miserable years in his life. Oh, I don't think they're the most miserable, Bob. But he had part of that truth. You had it right. You're going to serve something. Everything else is delusion. We either live to serve ourselves, which in reality is wickedness, it's rebellion, it's witchcraft, the Bible says, because it's idolatry. Or you live to serve the Lord, and there is really no gray area in between. <coughs> no. A housewife who means very well and was deeply probing and thinking about the things of God, where's the balance between taking care of my family and doing God's work? There is no balance between those two things. There is none. There's only obedience. You do what he tells you to do. Say, but my family will never get taken care of. Do you really think he doesn't care about your family? Just listen more closely. His work might not be what you think it is. But you don't get the right to decide, well, 80% of the time I'll do this and 20% of the time I'll do this and have a balanced life. We're to have a radically obedient life. Let's just say that I'm a father and I walk in because I do happen to be a father. Got five of them, right? Some are grown up now. Walk in. And what should a good father do when he walks in? Oh, I should sit down. I should play with the children. I should talk to them. I should say, do you feel good about your day? Right? We should interact. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But what if the living God is saying, I want your next hour? Then all of the time that I'm doing that with them, not only am I in disobedience to him, I'm not what they need me to be. So as long as we decide what is best, we consistently choose what is evil. When we say, Lord, I'm home, your word speaks of caring for the family, speaks of a lot of things. What would you like me to do today? This is the beginning of wisdom. It shows a fear for him in our every action. It's not self-directed. It's God-directed. And it doesn't fit into a formula. You know why? God can't be contained in our box. I tell you, you go to Colossians? Yes. yes. In Colossians, starting in the 13th verse, friends, we are nearing an end. So if you, if you rally here in your spirit, you shake off the sleepies, you defy all of the experts, 
that believe that you are utterly incapable of paying attention in church for more than an hour, but can watch three-hour movies, you will do yourself a great benefit. Because the Lord didn't send me here. Put me in this place. This church started out in my living room. If he didn't want it, it certainly wouldn't be here. There was never any money behind it, never any organization behind it, never any talent behind it. It was only the Lord. And a lot of it I was disobedient to. That's just the truth. Didn't do everything he told me to do, and I did a lot of things he told me not to do. I got angry, I got frustrated, I got hurt, all of those things, because I'm utterly dependent upon him. So if you're here, I'm going to call it a divine work, otherwise nobody would be here. Which means that this word coming through maybe the most unlikely vessel is for you. So just give me a couple minutes and give God all of your time. Fair enough? Yes. All right. Here comes Colossians, starting in the 13th verse. Provided I can find it. There we go. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. What word does dominion sound like? Sounds like kingdom. It sounds like what, JJ? You were dominated by darkness. That's not most people's testimony. Most people's testimony is, I'm a pretty good old boy. And, you know, one day I decided to love Jesus a little more. No, the Bible says you were dominated by darkness. The proof of that is you didn't get to choose what you wanted to do in those moments. Everything in you said, oh, I should walk away, but you threw the punch. Everything in you said, I should shut up now, but you spoke up. Everything in you said, don't do this, it's wrong, and you did it anyway. Dominated by darkness. This is where our lives start, friends. This is where we spend most of our lives. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He has brought you into the sphere of influence of the God of the universe. His king dominion, his kingdom. You were dominated by darkness, but now you have been brought near enough to hear His Word, and that is an act of grace. You couldn't have done anything to get into that kingdom. You couldn't get there yourself. You can't even get there from here. You have to start somewhere else. John 6.44 says, You cannot be saved unless the Spirit of my Father draw you. So if you have any love for God, any drawing towards Him, it's because He has given it to you. And now that he's given it to you, he wants you to do something with it. Realize where you've been taken from and where you have been planted now. And brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Word teaches us about God's character, and by necessity, it also teaches us about our character. There is no way around it. It is a double-edged sword to learn how righteous God is, is to learn how unrighteous we are. To learn how sufficient God is, is to learn how insufficient we are. And I am not a self-loathing, self-mortifying pastor. I believe I have a new identity in Christ, but that identity is based on something. My total Depravity before God. My total dependence upon Him. But friends, once He has revealed something, I now own it. Once He has credited me with something, 
is mine. So I don't walk around talking about what a terrible sinner I am. I aspire to be more. He has given me something. He's taken me from that to his kingdom. And I'm not going to let anybody take it away. But I give it away every time I'm disobedient. Or maybe it would be better to say every time I fail to be obedient. I'm giving it away. <coughs> the kingdom of God is based on your obedience to the message. It is based not on a one-time act of salvation, but a lifelong obedience. When he healed people, he said, go forth and sin no more. When he freed them from condemnation, he said, go forth and sin no more. He wants a changed life. Not a good few months followed by mediocrity for decades. He wants it to work through every part of your being, your family, your community. <laughs> There is no word in Hebrew for spiritual life. There is only life. And he gave you one life, not a segmented life, not one to live at church and one to live in the workplace and one to live at home. He gave you life. And it either belongs to him or it doesn't. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Think about that. When I turn on a light switch, what's supposed to happen? Light, the electrons obey the flick of my finger. When I tell my dog to come to me, I expect him to come. If the Lord tells it to rain, does it <coughs> rain? If he speaks to light and says, let there be light, is there? The only thing that he can speak to in all of creation that has the audacity to tell him no is us. And he gave you that ability. It's a choice. We can look at him and say no. And there are consequences we endure for that. With all of my heart, I'm trying to rally the strength, the dependency upon him, that in my weakness, his power would be there to say yes. Joellen and Gabrielle are going to come sing us a song and I'm going to read you two more things. Turn with me to Ephesians. <laughs> Tell me when you're in the second chapter. In the second chapter of Ephesians. Pick up with me in the first verse. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You may not have realized everybody's spirit filled. question is which spirit? All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, selfishly. And following his desires and thought, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
This description of grace means that you have no way to get to him, but he got to you. This is not a license for immorality. This is not a grace card to be played every time you decide not to do his will and say, oh, well, there's a permissive will of God. Grace appeared to all men in the sense that you can be saved. No work could accomplish that. His grace did. Now, what are you going to do with it? It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ Jesus and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through Him. And this is not a gift from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no man can boast. This is usually where this quote stops. It's very, very important to hone in on the 10th verse. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. Which he prepared in advance for a few of us. No. Which he prepared in advance for us to do. This means... That God saved you when you couldn't save yourself. Because His workmanship in your life was to a purpose. That you would accomplish things in His name that He ordained for you to do. So what happens when we're disobedient? It doesn't just kill us, it kills others. Revelation 14, the 12th verse says, This calls for patience, endurance on the part of the saints. But blessed are those who die from now on. For their deeds will follow them in eternity. What you do for the Lord lasts for an eternity. What you do for yourself burns up the moment your pleasure is over. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This is the last thing I do, then we'll sing together. This comes from a book that was written by a Baptist, so I didn't read it even though it was given to me. That's sad. That's prejudice. It's sin. It's wrong. I repent before you. We can learn from anybody. Paul said, take the least in the church, and he's able to instruct you. Because it never depended on the man. It depended on the God who was working in the man. And I'm so humbled by what this man has to teach, because based on his denominational title I decided he probably didn't have much to teach and now I'm his student because I was wrong listen to what he says the gospel confronts us with the hopelessness of our sinful condition but we don't like what we see of ourselves in the gospel so we shrink from it we live in the land of self-improvement certainly there are steps we can take to make ourselves better we modify what the gospel says about us. We're not evil, we think, and certainly not spiritually dead. Haven't you heard of the power of positive thinking? I can become a better me and my experience my best life now. That's why God is there, to make that happen. My life is not going right, but God loves me and has a plan to fix my life. I simply need to follow certain steps, think certain things, and check off certain boxes, and then... I'm good. 
Both our diagnosis of the situation and our conclusion regarding the solution fit nicely into a culture that exalts self-sufficiency, self-esteem, and self-confidence. We already have a fairly high, fairly high view of our morality, so when we add superstitious prayer and a subsequent dose of church attendance and obedience to some of the Bible, we feel pretty sure that we'll be right in the end. Note the contrast, however, when you diagnose the problem biblically. The modern-day gospel says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Therefore, follow these steps and you can be saved. Meanwhile, the biblical gospel says you are an enemy of God, dead in your sin, and in your present state of rebellion, you are not even able to see that you need life, much less cause yourself to come to life. Therefore, you are radically dependent upon God to do something in your life that you could never do yourself. The former sells books and draws, clouds, draws crowds. The latter saves souls. We need to ask ourselves which is more important. In the gospel, God reveals the depth of our need for Him. He shows us that there is absolutely nothing we can do to come to Him. We can't manufacture salvation. We can't program it. We can't produce it. We can't even initiate it. God has to open our eyes and set us free, overcome our evil and appease His own wrath. He has to come to us. Now we're getting to the beauty of the gospel. And friends, this is why His word is enough if you strip everything else away. Because it does each of those things for us. If we're dependent upon it and obedient to it. This man has a 4,500 member church, but he started holding six hour services, refusing to do child care, quitting praise and worship. And stopping a service every hour to pray for the church around the world that was meeting in secret. How dare me judge him by a title. Let's worship together. Stand to your feet and we're going to close the service soon.
possibility you would never make it in the kingdom anyway. If you believe that Jesus is worthy of more of the surrender of your life, if you believe he purchased your obedience and deserves more than he's been getting, I'm not going to ask you to walk to an altar. 
I'm going to ask you to live differently when you walk out of the building. If we see you three times in a row in this church, we assume you're a member because we don't have membership. We refuse to do church, pass an <laughs> offering, and let you think you've done a service for God because we collected a bill for you. Instead, we put a box in the back that is based on obedience. We encourage lives that are based on obedience. I want to tell you no selfish person has ever entered the kingdom. If this service moved your heart, honor God by not letting this be a moment that passes. Purpose in your heart, write on the bulletin. What are you going to do differently tomorrow? And then don't wait till tomorrow to do it. You feel like you've been born again. If you feel like this is a new start, tell somebody. Nobody in this church can declare you saved. Instead, what happens is the Spirit of God begins to testify with your spirit that something's happened. I was given the right to preach salvation. I was never given the right to declare someone saved or to take it away the domain of the political church. But there should be a radical response to this radical message. We're going to sing again, not to drag it out, not to give you time to walk up front, give you the time to decide what you need to do. And I want to tell you that it doesn't matter how much we say, Lord, Lord, we either do what he says to do or we do not. We are either a sheep or where it go. This service is dismissed. It's dismissed with this prayer. We're just going to sing and worship. We're going to sing and worship while we dismiss. So if your heart is at rest, you feel free to file out anytime you want. If your heart tells you something more needs to be done, I'm going to remain here.